Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and I am really excited for the pretty unique episode you're about to hear. In it, I'm joined by Martha Wells. She is the author of a number of books, but most recently, a four-volume sci-fi series called The Murderbot Diaries. The plot of those four volumes features, at its center, a character that is sort of a cyborg, made up in part of living organic material, but equipped with artificial intelligence. Because of that, the books offer a really useful tool for helping us to think about things like robotics and AI on the battlefield, how we make use of those technologies, and even how we relate to the machines that, with increasingly sophisticated capabilities, become more and more like us, beings that think, make decisions, and act. These are all questions that in military and defense circles are going to have to be contended with, especially in the context of manned-unmanned teaming. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick notes. First, this is the final one of a few episodes I had a chance to record at a conference organized a few months ago by the Army's Mad Scientist program. If you aren't familiar with them, I would highly recommend following the team on Twitter and checking out their blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory. They are doing some really great work on a range of topics related to the future of warfare. Second, if you're new to the MWI podcast, make sure you find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a second and give us a rating or leave a review. And finally, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Martha Wells. Martha Wells, thanks so much for sitting down, taking some time to talk about uh, a few of your books. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So... Specifically, I want to talk about, you've got, is it four books in the Murderbot Diaries yes, four series? Nove- yeah, novellas so far. Okay. Um, without spoilers, can you kind of give listeners the sort of wave top view of the, of the, of the general idea? Um, it's a series about a, um, a sec unit who is a part robot, part human construct. And it's basically owned by this security, security bond company, basically an insurance company and rented out um, on contracts to like guard mining installations and guard survey parties and be you know security for them and it has a governor module that controls what it can and can't do that will basically kill it if it disobeys an order and what this particular sec unit does is it has hacked its governor module and the expectation is when that happens that it will go rogue and go out and kill all the humans it can find and do all these terrible things. And what this one actually does is it's used it to uh, download media from the entertainment channels and basically the internet that it has access to. And watching these, watching this media and, and you know, these TV shows basically, and, and it makes it understand kind of what its feelings, it gives it context for its emotions that it's having. And so it actually keeps doing its job for a while until it has an opportunity to escape. And that's what the first book is about. And the rest of the books are basically it's continuing adventures. So, uh, you know, you talk about sentience, and I think that that's a really interesting dynamic uh, here. When we think about sentience, um, is it... Is this a binary thing? You're either sentient or not, or is it a sort of spectrum where it's hard to kind of define... Uh, what what distinguishes sentience from non-sentience? Um, and then the second question kind of related to that is, uh, is sentience the emotions that Murderbot feels, or is it 
the context that he develops after watching all of this sort of media? I think it's, I don't, I think it is a spectrum because if you've ever interacted with an animal, you know, it's like we consider animals to not be sentient, but they clearly have emotions and, and they clearly, they can communicate with us to a certain extent. And we're now finding out, say, you know, that there's whales and basically dolphins that also have cultures almost, and they have, um, um, or patterns of behavior that certainly seem to, to seem to be like a culture. And, um, so I think it is a spectrum, um, and it's like it, it's kind of corny, but there's a line from one of the early Star Trek movies where they go back and find the whales, and the um, the the whale expert says, "Even somebody's intelligence does not um, mean I can I can if it doesn't make them any less human. If someone has a low intelligence, that doesn't make them any less human." And I think it's like that. It's like it's it's. You know, there's intelligences that we don't understand in animals. Is it, so to you, when you're thinking through this, especially, I guess, within the context of, 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 of this narrative that you've built, is it sort of an ability to think and compute? Is it about perceiving? Is it about emotions? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of about the feeling and perceiving. Um, Murderbot, basically, it was a bot-human construct. It was always sentient. It's just that it couldn't, it didn't have any free will, and it, it could barely, you know, even thinking the wrong thing can trigger this governor module, so it, they have to, the secunds have to be very controlled. Um, the other, it's the other bots, I think, is that are, are, would look to us like, you know, just an appliance, like the holler bots are basically big square things with, with arms, basically. Um, they do have a form of sentience too, in that they're they're designed not to um, to do certain tasks, but they kind of. The, but as when there's a bit later in the in one of the books where Murderbot kind of convinces one to do something for him and and um, or for it. So that that leads me to a question that I was really looking forward to asking because in uh, is it the second book I believe teams up with this research transport vessel, mm-hmm. um, and so now you've got a. Um, Murderbot, which is which is, I know it's simplistic to call it this because there's some hybridity, I guess, but a machine, yeah, but a humanoid machine, and then another machine that is not, and and that raises kind of an interesting issue, um, which is to what degree form um, kind of influences the way we perceive uh, of machines, and which is really important when you know from a military perspective as we start looking at robots. I mean, we feel differently when we see. A sort of a biped human looking mm-hmm. thing uh, versus you know like you said just a, a cube with computing power yeah um, yeah there was a question in the in the conference about the task oriented robots but um, yeah murderbot does perceive them um, differently than humans would um, and I think the I think the form does cause humans to to maybe dismiss them as, you know, just appliances or tools. Um, when to another AI, it's just, it doesn't, the form doesn't really matter. Um, they're interacting with the, with the, with the int- actual, the intelligence that's in there. And um, when Murderbot encounters a bunch of different kinds of, of other bots throughout the series, and a lot of them are, are uh, more sophisticated than others, and some of them are very sophisticated at this one task. And um, 
uh, even like the little drones it uses after a certain point, you know, you sort of start to anthropomorph anthropomorphize them. And that's kind of one thing I wanted to do. It's like I wanted the reader to kind of start out thinking of, a, okay, this is a holler bot. It just sounds like a box. It sounds like a, you know, a, a forklift or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I want you to start to have sympathy with, you know, them, all the different types of sure. bots, no matter, no matter what level they were on. So that kind of leads me to another question, which is, you know, separate from the distinction between this sort of humanoid sentient thing and the research transport vessel or the hauler mm -hmm. bots. Um, there's also this relationship between uh, murder bot and the scientist, the scientist um, and, and I think in, in, actually in one of the descriptions of the books, they say, you know, is this a protector? Is this a friend? Uh, and I think this has really important implications for, uh, again, for the military when we start thinking about manned, unmanned teaming, human machine teaming. Um, was that was that a theme that you deliberately wanted to kind of um, poke, I guess, a little bit to kind of uh, to suss out this relationship between creator and created AI? Yeah. Well, Min Dr. Mensah didn't really create it. Uh, uh, she was. Um she was forced to rent it from the company, so she was its client, basically. And um, that was basically for it the first time. It actually had a relationship with a client where it was more like um, she was treating it more like a member, just another member of the group, than she was treating it like a tool, which is what it was used to. Uh, so it was already sort of starting to um, um, starting to like her and like working with this this group. Uh, when she became basically, the, the group became the first humans that knew it had uh, hacked its governor module and that started to treat it basically as more, as closer to an equal. Um, that did cause it a lot of conflict because it's not that it hates humans, it doesn't really, it doesn't really care about humans, but kind of wanting to have the same kind of relationship with them that it saw in its media, in the, the books and the movies and the TV shows where people, it has that kind of found family. So it starts to kind of want that, but it kind of knows realistically, is this, is this possible or not? It doesn't, it doesn't know and it isn't sure and it doesn't, it isn't sure it wants it. So a lot of the series is it trying to kind of process and figure out it's how, what relationship it wants to have with humans, even the humans it likes. It's like, does it want to continue these relationships? You know, there's in, in conversations, public and professional conversations about AI and autonomy and things, especially in the circles that, you know, um, within the mad scientist community and, and uh, within the military, there's always an ethical component. Uh, what aspects of the sort of ethical dimension of mm -hmm. this were really important to you to to try to tease out? Well, the just the again, it's like you're creating if it you know if it is uh, a sentient being, you know, are you forcing it to do things? It's like the kind of the you're creating a sentient being to do certain tasks. You know, that's that's slavery basically. It's like we really have to think of it like that. Um, you know, we have ethical treatment of animals, or we, we, we're trying to have ethical treatment of animals. Uh, some of these robots are gonna be at about the same level as, as a dog or a chimpanzee or a dolphin. Um, do, you know, we really have to think about those things. That's a, that's a really good segue into an, uh, like a, a sort of related idea that I have, which is um, ethics can be codified into law. Yeah, you're right. There are, you know, there are organizations lobbying for for more ethical treatment of animals. There are also, you know, laws that have sort of codified that. Um, 
there's a justice component to this as well, right? Murderbot does does some things that, uh, and again, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but uh, does some things that if a human had done it, there's a justice component. How is that? Is that also an issue that you were deliberately trying to sort of engage with? Yeah, I I mean, Murderbot is a dangerous is a dangerous being, and um, just like a human in this situation would be would be dangerous. And I didn't want to uh, sugarcoat that. I wanted you know the some of the concerns that uh, that the the society and the books have toward sec units are genuine because some of them have been. Um, basically turned into killing machines. You can't always count on the fact that there's just a person in there that's trapped. You know, you don't, you don't know what, what you're dealing with. And that's the, that's the society's fault. That's not the individual um, sec unit's fault, but still it's a, it's a consideration. So I didn't want it to make it an easy, you know, if we just do this, everything will be fine situation, because that's not really a situation that happens in the real world at any point. Sure, you know, there's a, um, if a human commits a crime with a tool, a machine, the human is still held liable. You don't destroy the machine um, necessarily. But at some point on that spectrum of sentience, as we talked about, the sort of um, the blame gets shifted along uh, toward the machine as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that something that, um, again, that, that was one of the things that I was sort of thinking through. Um, is that it was that deliberate on your part? Yeah, I, I, a lot of the things that Murderbot's done in the past, it has had no choice about. Um, and you know, I don't want again. I don't want to give the spoiler where of why it murdered so many people. They find out, or it finds out why it murdered so many people. But um, there's times when it had responsibility, and there's times when it didn't. And um, it's just a difficult. It's just a very difficult question. I wanted people to think about. Sure, and. So while, you know, while I'm thinking through this narrative, it's prompting questions for me. When you sit down to write, you know, sci-fi can entertain, it can conform, inform, uh, it can um, sort of trigger a questioning process in readers. Um, the easy answer is it's intended to do all of those things, specifically with respect to the types of um, challenges that you want readers to grapple with. Um, do you set out with kind of a list of things that, that when you sit down to write that you want readers to, to question? Not really. It kind of develops organically as you're building the characters. Um, usually what I'm thinking about is I, I want to tell a certain story and I kind of, and the character kind of comes along with that. It's like, I have to, it's kind of, for me, it's like world building. When I'm world building, I want to build the kind of world that would create the character I want to write. Mm. So people will ask you which comes first. You're like, well, they all kind of come together. You know, you can't, for me at least, I can't really pull out one element and develop it first. I'll have to think about everything at the same time. So I don't really think about, um, you know, I, when I was writing All Systems Red, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, ethical uh, questions or morality questions as, or as regards AI. I was just kind of really in the head of this character trying to figure out what their experience would be and it all kind of evolved out of that so does that mean are you ever surprised when a reader might come up to you and and ask a question and say wow i really did not did not did not see are they is it sort of a are they interpreting it and reading into it you know like a like a um, somebody at an art gallery might be interpreting and, and, and focusing on different aspects of of a piece of art very much so and it happens a lot and um you learn so much about your work that way. And, um, and 
Murderbot's a very important character to a lot of people who saw themselves in it, either because of it, the transformation it's undergoing, um, the it, or because of the social anxiety, um, uh, because of its perception of the world. They thought they had always they've had similar. That's it's close to their perception. So there's just all you, you never know what when you when you create a character. Uh, you never really know what it's going to mean to different people and different readers. And it's kind of like when you put your you put your work out into the world and, and people interpret it, and it becomes you know becomes theirs basically in in certain ways. And when uh, you're in a venue like this, um, with people who kind of are are maybe reading it through a national security lens, um, do you find that they ask different questions? A little bit different. Uh, um, yeah, in science fiction conventions, I think a, a, a lot more of the questions, I'll get questions occasionally like this, but mostly it'll be more the looking at the, the social questions or, um, you know, specific things that are very specific to the character. And does, you know, do the relationships, because relationships, I think, form a big part of, of, of these stories, um, do the relationships between humans and Murderbot, are they, are they particularly useful for helping us understand uh, real-world relationships between humans and other humans? I think they are. Um, there's a lot of people who feel isolated for, for one reason or another, and um, I think having characters going through that sort of that similar experience does help. Uh, it kind of helps, again, it's kind of like the thing that uh, Murderbot uses media for. It gives you context for the emotions you're feeling. You can point at it and go, yeah, that's right. That's, that's kind of what I'm going through, and I think it does... Um, you know, this is why this is why we do fiction. And what is it? Um, what was it? I guess this is going to kind of lead into. I have a couple of process questions that I'm that I'm really interested in. Um, where what was what was sort of the germ of this series of books for you? Uh, I really don't know. I was I was working on the last book of the Rexura series, which is the Harbors of the Sun, and and that was. Um, uh, it was the end of the whole series, and it was kind of a, it was it wasn't especially difficult to write, but it took a lot of work. So I'd been working really intensely on it for um, ten or eleven months, and I was um, probably at the almost to the end of the first draft. And I got the idea for Murderbot, and I thought, well, this will be a, a nice short story. And I kind of I'm just going to write down, you know, the the first cup, you know, a couple of lines about the idea, so I didn't forget it, and I ended up writing the first five pages, oh, wow. and so it just kind of came out. And I thought, okay, so I'm really interested in this idea, but I've got to finish this book first, <laughs> and I went back and finished Harbors of the Sun, that draft of Harbors of the Sun, and then I sat down in the next month, wrote All Systems Red, basically. Um, so I'm not really sure where it came from. I think I'd been I'd been reading a lot of science fiction lately, uh, the Ancillary Justice trilogy by Anne Leckie, and and other things. So I think it was probably um, just kind of um, a creative burst, maybe from having worked on this other this fancy novel for so long, and then doing this other reading. And what was it about AI in particular that sort of attracted you? Um, well, it's. What I really wanted to do was tell a story about a person that was in a situation or a society where the other characters did not think of them as a person, but that when you, from their perspective, it was, it was, it was blindingly obvious that they were a person. So that's what I was trying to get, and AI was really the best way to tell that story. 
And as you so you said, you know, you kind of described telling the first of the its four volumes in this uh, in this series. At what point did you realize there's got to be a second and maybe even more after that? Well, the um, originally it was going to be a short story with a sad ending. And as I was writing it, I was kind of going, oh, you know, this is this needs to be longer to tell the story. It's never going to fit in short story form. And also, I'm kind of really not wanting to do a sad ending. And I actually didn't know until almost the very end. I was trying to decide whether Murderbot would stay or leave. And um, um, so it, it, it was very open. I wanted to make it open-ended. Or it ended up being very open-ended. And then uh, the publisher was Tor.com. Does um, they're part of Tor Books, and they they do they they've done a, a few novels, but they mostly do novellas. Mm-hmm. And um, so we sold it to them. My agent sold it to them, and um, they asked for a second one. And I was like, okay, you know. And then uh, when I was writing the second one. Um, that's when kind of the rest of the story started coming to me, and I kind of thought, well, I want to, I do want to do two more, at least two more volumes. And actually, there's going to be a novel that I'm working on the end of now, and it's called Network Effect, and it's going to be out in May 2020. Oh wow! It, it, continuing this series? Yes, it's going to kind of continue where Exit Strategy leaves off. I'm sure we have some fans that will be very excited <laughs> about that. Um, so, and and so when you're writing, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the themes. As you sit down to write, this is the story. How far behind the story is your writing? You know, are, are you is it developing, kind of right from your head to your fingertips, at that moment, or do you have a vision for some of the themes that you want to highlight? Um, I have a, I have, I don't outline, so it's pretty much I'm pretty much making it up as I go along. Sometimes I know where I want it to end up. And usually after the first, after I write the beginning, I start having, I, I kind of know where I'm going. But uh, that can change along the way. I do novels the same way. Usually with a novel, though, I know basically the first kind of major shift in the story that I'm working toward. And once I get there, I'll know the, the next major shift and so on. Um, yeah, I've just, I've never been good at outlining and sticking to it. I've had to do it occasionally for the, like, for the Star Wars book I did and for the Stargate Atlantis book I had to do an outline. But um, I actually don't, I do a lot of action scenes and I don't really, I can't really visualize how the action scenes are going to work unless I actually write them. It's very difficult for me to do it in outline because you can, you can write sound, oh, and then they do this and it seems like it will work and then you get into actually writing that and taking in all the factors into consideration like this is not going to work. (laughs) This, they'll kill them immediately. Um, So yeah, I don't, um, outlining doesn't tend to help me a lot. So it's mostly making it up as I go along. Are you ever surprised by the direction that it takes? Yeah. um, That's kind of, that's kind of one of the things I like best is when something will happen and, and um, that I wasn't expecting or I'll come up with, you know, a really cool idea that people will think, oh, well, you've been working toward this all along. It's like, no, I, I wasn't working toward it. I came up to it, it, came up with it at the end of the book and then I, re- I revised. So it looked like I was working toward it. You know, I think sci-fi is in recent years and it has been quite recent um, in, again, in sort of national security circles has emerged as um, a sort of favorite vehicle uh, to explore some ideas that sometimes um, we struggle to to explore because we're too rooted in reality and we need to kind of be given permission to break free of that to explore some um, complicated and, and challenging issues the uh, the books are phenomenal I think they are really useful vehicles to explore some uh, some ideas that um, 
within our profession, we, we have an obligation to explore. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.